This is Immerse, the podcast and book. Composer, sound artist Charlie Morrow explores immersion in public events, broadcasts, music, installations, and environmental systems. Immerse compares timelines in conversations with more than 40 collaborators. Immerse. This is Charlie Morrow for Immerse. Sound, light, space. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're talking with Mia Misaoka, composer, performer, sound artist, and director of Columbia University's Sound Art Program, an explorer of inner and outer sound worlds. The, the, the ask from my side is, how does immersivity fit into your current practice? And then what's a timeline from when you first got inspired to work with sound and uh, and built up to this point. Okay, let's see, where's the good place to start? How about some of the early pieces using using immersivity and sound? That sounds marvelous. Or I think this, this discussion of immersivity without the computer is also interesting because there's the immersive experience with sound where it's coming from this three-dimensionality and then smaller sounds that are very located in physical location, like if there's an insect in the corner of your house that's buzzing and you can locate that sound and it has a much more identifiable sound source via location. And that seems to somehow be contrasted with this idea, and perhaps not, I'm just thinking out loud, contrasting with the idea of immersive sound, which is feels that it's very global in the sense that it's coming from all around our environment and we can't locate or pinpoint a specific sound source. Would you say that that's kind of the general terms of what we're talking about? Oh, well, uh, that's, that's only one way to look at it. From my point of view, we're immersed in the atmosphere. You're immersed in the room and you hear the insect. And if, it was, if there was no air, you'd, you wouldn't hear the insect. <laughs> you, you, uh, <laughs> right. Your head, your head would explode. So if, if you think of the analogy of a fish tank, there's fish and then there's the water and the tank. And my idea of immersivity is the combination of the environment and the things that we experience in the environment. And as a maker of 3D experiences, I need to make both for it to happen. Otherwise, what you get is the um, provided immersive environment of the room you're in and there's the mosquito. But if you're going to create a new work, you then have to uh, add to the room doing something that fills the room and then the mosquito is both in the room and in your sound field. That's kind of more what I was talking okay. about. So what you're talking um, somewhat of like the, the Murray Schaefer idea of the soundscape and that it's this overall arching flow of sound of the environment. Exactly. That's, that's how I've heard it. And that in that sense, that's what say people doing work specifically in virtual reality or games or underwater performances where there's an environmental element plus the sound and I, everything's got a context is, is, is really what, what I see. Everything is someplace except in the imagination, say a platonic universe where you have perfect object and a 
as a pure idea that just exists in idea space without any boundaries, which was, you know, one of the historic ideas. Can you go back a little bit to this analogy of the fish in the water in the tank? So do you mean that the fish is swimming in different locations in the tank? Yeah. Are you talking about the water? You're talking about the fish? Are you talking about Both. the tank? All three things. Absolutely. Uh, I am. But that might be my practice. For you, I mean, uh, I didn't want to hear you describe immersivity from my perspective, but rather from yours. It, just as you said, you heard the mosquito in the room and your ability to locate it was key. And so there's that sound. And then there's the sound of the room, both. And then if you play an instrument, then the instrument is part of the room where everything is part of something. Right. And I guess you talked about earlier the, this idea of the perception of the sound, how we perceive it, and then what happens with those vibrations. If they happen and then nobody hears it or sees it, then does that even exist? I think you talked about that at one point. Yeah, I think that's more pure philosophical. I'm, in a way, a lot of what I'm talking about with immersivity relates to everybody who's involved, who I'm interviewing, does something with sound. <laughs> I'm asking people how um, working with sound and spatial sound is important to them because spatial sound is immersive sound always. And, and then just how that thinking evolved. Clearly, you started out maybe playing with a, you know, a stick and a bicycle wheel or something when you were a kid. Something opened the door of sound in your head. One of our colleagues described walking with his mother as a very small kid in a narrow pathway uh, out, you know, in his town, and that he heard the flutter echo of his footsteps with the, with the sound sort of bounced between the two walls. And that experience, which he had over and over again as a little kid, opened up his head, and he still thinks back to it as a 70-year-old sound artist. So I'm just sharing some of, some of the stories, because I'm basically looking for stories about sound experience. Well, one possible early experience with sound for me was I had a cat, and, um, you know, always holding the cat, petting the cat, touching the cat, etc., and... Its name was fur. And so, you know, you could feel both the vibration of the purring, which is a really interesting kind of thing that happens. And it happens, the purring happens when the fur is happy and content, et cetera, and you're touching it. So there's this emotion quality of the sound and the vibration of the purring of a cat. And I think that had a, a big influence because cats were a big part of my life as a child. And that sense of what is vibration, what is sound, and what's the relationship between the two, because they are different, but they're overlapping and they're related, is always something that I think is, that is still intriguing for me now. There's the idea that the, the cat does this vibration and purring when it's happy, and therefore it's, but it's also very calming that my cat had a bunch of litters, and that I saw that when she was like nursing the, the litter, the, the baby kittens, that they would also purr and that there would be like this purring groups of purring entities or bodies and they would almost chorus with each other. I think if, like when there's six kittens and a mother cat, they're drinking and they're chorusing with their purring. It's an interesting experience to behold. It sure is. I mean, it's uh, amazing to hear you describe it. I mean, I've heard it and... Uh... When you hear version, versions of the same sound coming from different critters. <laughs> and well, and the sound that's very so closely related to what we know is to be an emotion of calm, happiness, contentment, 
feeling secure. Of course, these are human emotions that we're putting onto animals, but they feel safe in their drinking, so they seem somewhat content. So there is this feeling, and I think that, you know, moving on to to thinking about different kinds of working with social insects and insects that sound, such as the fur giant Madagascar hissing cockroaches that I worked with for a number of years, those were are social insects and they do make an extraordinary sound when, not when they're happy, but when they're more um, feeling distressed, they will make this incredible electronic, very white noise, very loud sound coming out of the size of, of the insect. And so while I'm talking about that piece, I'll, that was in 1995. It was called Ritual with Giant Hissing Madagascar Cockroaches. And for that piece, I was um, naked on a table, and there were 12 Madagascar cockroaches that were crawling over me. And I had laser beams. At the beginning, they were um, alarms. They were burglar alarms that were hacked from Radio Shack. And I recorded these insects because they had such an extraordinary natural sound. And then the samples of their sound sounded like an electronically produced what noise. So, but when they crossed the burglar alarm trigger beams, invisible beams, they would their samples, the sample of their sound would be recreated in the room. And there would also be a people holding these Tibetan bells that would slowly wander and rove throughout the audience. And so there was this further dimensionality of the sound slowly moving with with the bells sounds. One thing about this piece is that in the liner notes for the evening in 1995, I talked about it being the idea of the social constructions of race and gender that are projected upon the body as a site for control. And it was based on the fact that as a Japanese American, all of my relatives were put into Japanese American prison camps during the war based on one sixteenth or one thirty second of Japanese blood. And this was really an abstract idea of what blood is and et cetera, because that, that small amount wouldn't even existed because immigrants from Japan hadn't been coming from Japan that long to even have that amount. But it was this abstract amount, I guess, taken from tribal Native American ideas of what is of what they were called Indians at the time. And um, so it was a piece that had to do with this idea of, of social construction onto a blank canvas and that these cockroaches were creating their own landscape on this blank canvas of the body as a metaphor of society doing that on the body as well for race and gender. So that's a um, long and complex description of the impetus of the piece, but it was formed in a number of places, including the last performance art festival in America, in Cleveland, Ohio, also at UVSA in Groningen in the Netherlands, V2 in the Netherlands, and it premiered at at Intersection for the Arts in San Francisco. But there was also video of close-ups of these cockroaches who were cleaning their antennas and doing different kinds of things. And they're crawling all over my body and then they're um, cleaning themselves or just walking around oblivious. And, you know, the, the shape of the knee is just like a random hill for them. But they do all run towards my 
feet because it feels, I think, more like a limb for them where they feel safe when they're on a limb. So that's one of the pieces that was done um, in 1995. That's an amazing piece uh, as described. And related to that was I traveled with these cockroaches at the time before 9-11, and it was easier to travel with these large insects. And I put them in Tupperware boxes and drilled holes in the Tupperware boxes and wore them in this vest that had all these different pockets. So I put two cockroaches in one pocket and another, some five in another larger box, like on my back in different places. And then I was able to walk through the metal detectors because they cared about metal in those days, I think. And so they, um, they traveled with me and I witnessed how they acted with each other. I did only took one male and then the rest females, because if I took too many males, they would just all fight with each other. That was very interesting to watch them over a period of days. And I would just be fascinated just watching them for hours in my hotel room every night. So it was kind of an interesting time. Another piece related to my insects was called the Bee Show or the Bee Project. Again, it was social insects and using how they relate to each other and how they exist both as an individual insect, but also as a hive, as a group, and what they're able to accomplish. It was 1996, and it was called, I used, I had thousands of live bees in a glass exhibit hive. I took just smaller amounts of bees and put them in these tubes that my bee handler had, and they created different pitches when they were in different tubes. And then when he put smoke into the glass exhibit hive, they would go up to a C sharp from a C, so their wings would go faster and they would create this humming, would change this coursing of their sounds of the bee buzz, would would change depending on what, what the bee handler was doing. And I had, again, different video projections too of the close-ups of the bees. But the bees themselves, they do a bee dance and they're able to, with movements of their bee body, they're able to show where the best place is for the whole hive to go, which flower, and they're able to do this mathematical relationship of the sun, and different bees will go and advocate for different flowers to go to in different locations of this X and Y axis. And then the bees as a group, they watch and and with all the pheromones going on as well, perceive which is the most favorable place for the hive to go. And so they they do a bee dance when they agree that that's the place they want to go. And then they all leave as a hive to that place. And I was also exploring the idea of improvisation and what kind of what kind of agency and and subjectivity is happening and how is their group decisions being made because they would make these group decisions. I'm sure that there's been a lot of research done since 1996, but all of it points to this higher ability of complexity in their behavior than what was previously um, understood. And I think that's true with a lot of the things that I've been working with, whether it's insects or plants or these ideas that plants and insects have a higher higher aspect to their um, networking and to their exchange of data and exchange of information than what was previously thought. So that was just kind of a general thing. But this bee show, because it was so difficult, I think I did it twice with the the beehive. Um, I did it something called Sound Culture, in 1995 that Ed Osborne curated. And at that time I had people on different stringed instruments and they would 
play the bow and emulate different kinds of sounds on string instruments with, with of course, a vibrating since it created a mu musical um, compositions that incorporated these uh, live bee sounds. And because it was so impractical to travel with bees, also people could die if they got stung and they were allergic to them, if they escaped. I had to have someone on hand with a vacuum that could, someone could, could vacuum if the glass broke, if the exhibit glass broke. So it became quite a production and impractical. And so I created a video that was like a standalone video called Adventures of the Solitary Bee. It's a bit humorous and it talks about the bee dance. So, so that was able to have a life and travel in a way because it was a video standalone piece that could somehow document all the work that I'd done over the years with bees and not have to carry the bees around. But I will mention that I did create a beehive environment using an old fashioned, it was an early multi-track system with eight channels and the bees sounds would be in the eight, would be in eight speakers. This was presented at the San Francisco Electronic Music Festival. People would sit inside the circle and different aspects of the hive sounds would wave in towards them and then wave would dissipate, et cetera. Uh, that's a fantastic to hear that story. Uh, I built a beehive. Uh, my first immersive sound experience that I built with my sound cube was a beehive performance at uh, Michael Schumacher's Diapason Gallery. Uh, we had the Queen Bee's chamber, and it was like you were in a satellite, and bees came up through the floor and visited the Queen Bee. And so you had the sense of being in, in the hive itself, but the hive had the feeling as though it were a satellite above the earth because of the scale, because the hive was the size of the room, and the room was 20-odd feet on a side. So you had a tremendously scaled-up beehive with large bee sounds coming up and bees circling and coming closer. In the next room, we had a system that had separate speakers. And if, if you created a vibration, the, the louder, more intense your vibration was, the more the bees would chase you around the room. The system would locate you and chase you around. So it's interesting that, uh, to me, <laughs> have overlap because that was my first real sound cube piece. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it's a natural thing to go to in a way, and I used this software that um, Ron, Anderson, that Ron Anderson was developing, and it was before Earcom had their spatialized software, so it was kind of before all of that. Nothing could be done in real time, so I had to draw in the software how things would go and how fast they would go from speaker to speaker, and then later, of course, with different programs using spatialization, things became very different. But speaking of the Queen Bee, my the documentary I made was, well, it was like a mockumentary because it was, you know, funny as well as being these photos of these all these bees crawling on my body. But the idea that the Queen Bee is fed special food and the other bees are fed a very different kind of food. And any bee genetically can become a Queen Bee, but because, because this one bee is given a special food, they change and they mature into a queen bee. And so I use that as an analogy of, of the class system and, and these class distinctions of the queen bee and the worker bee, et cetera. But the, the hive is a very interesting sonic idea for humans, how we imagine the hive to be and our experiences with bees and then how we imagine what it would be to be inside a hive. And so it's, it's a really fertile area. I think. 
So I'm going to talk about another piece that I did called For Birds, Planes, and Cello. And this is one of my so-called hits, although, you know, relatively speaking, it's quite a joke. But it was written for Joan Renault from the Cronus Quartet. And it was premiered at Headland Center for the Arts in California. And later it was performed at the White Box with Alex Waterman and Thomas Ulrich at Bishop Project Room. And this piece was being performed between mostly 2003 and 2007. I was living in San Diego and there are these deep canyons in San Diego. So I took a microphone and also with my friend Marcos Fernandez and we went down to the, these canyons with all this equipment. Actually, I hurt my back climbing, trying to climb up with the tripods, etc. But you know, I basically wanted to record an hour of uncut sound from very early in the morning to later on. And it was very interesting because what happened was is there's 200 both native and migrant species of birds in the San Diego canyons. And they're going from the Arctic to South America. And then there are native species that are there and they all kind of mingle together. But when the planes fly overhead, and you're in a deep canyon, so everything sounds like it's amplified. It's a very odd sensation. It sounds like there's mechanical, you know, electrical amplification going on when in fact it's just a natural vibration of the earth shape. And so as the planes are going by, the birds, all these 200 species are squawking and chirping and singing in, in response. And then the plane keeps it going on its merry way and it's quiet in the canyon and the birds just settle down and they're quiet again and there's this soundscape sound of the quiet field and then another plane comes by and the birds start building up again because the entryway you know the incoming flame is like kind of a long um, fade in and there's also an associated fade in with the birds it's really quite sonically very interesting and so but what happens is that with the uh, the San Diego airport's early morning schedule the planes create their own climax of the piece because the the birds are chorusing and responding to the plane and so it builds up to this constant noise and uh, cacophony of of these things and and then i i wrote in a cello part where joan jamano plays a detuned cello and at different times works with the sound of the engines and the mechanical industrial sound, very noisy sound of the engine. And then there's the sound of the birds. And she doesn't literally go to imitate all these different sounds, but she is a a very big part of this composition. And so it was basically a one hour um, recording of, of the canyon. And it was at a time when what was in style was really fast plunder phonics of you know two second samples was all the rage at the time so this was really going completely against the grain of what was happening among among this people doing active and sound and samples and field recordings etc hello oh that was a wonderful description now that was a really wonderful story um, i think that it seems like am i hearing right that you sense the communication as well as the sound in every one of these pieces you're working with that you you've become involved with with what's going on so to speak you're not just appreciating it or getting off on it you're um, actually setting up and uh, enhancing communications and interrelations and and, and that becomes a uh, little worlds that then animate well i didn't interact with the birds or the planes i just kind of let them do their thing that they would do 
every day of the week. But by having a cello, writing a cello part with that was not a completely transgressive act, but at the time, the purists and some of the people that I was friends with thought that these soundscapes should be completely without any musical intervention at all and just purely a field recording. So there are these different ideologies that I think that I transgressed in different ways. And of course, I mentioned the plunder phonics and really fast samples, which was the aesthetic of the day. And then also, on the other hand, there were the purists of the environmental field recordists whose basically, ideologically, would not be in favor of any kind of musical instrument being put with sound recording, field recording. So there's that. Marvelous. Your own role is, in this is, of course, what our conversation is about. You're the traveler and the uh, composer and the gatherer of sound and the uh, initiator of you know, orchestrations. That's why I'm talking to you, because of your gift for that kind of wor- you know, world-making. Thank you so much. I mean, that's very kind. And I, um, I'm very happy to be talking with you because you are an incredible world maker. I mean, I'm fascinated by the worlds that you are a part of and that you contribute to and that you make. There are these inquiries, I think, of why something is the way it is or even why, how do we know we know something and what do we know? And then being in awe of particular experiences in the world that bring us out of our worldly bodies into some other kind of space and mental and physical and spiritual space. And I think that it's this closest thing to the awe of, of both what exists in nature. I think we talked about experiences in nature and childhood. My dad did in particular is our families would go camping and, and also backpacking as a teenager or, and I'd see not, not just the sunset, but be in the woods and see deep ravines and lakes and firefalls and waterfalls and have an incredible feeling of awe, A-W-E, you know, just being very much attuned to a larger sense of what the universe is. I, I think, you know, as a modern person, it's the closest we can get to this kind of ritualized sense of being rooted with the universe and in kind of a sense of eternal time. I don't want to say a religious experience, but it it does that a little bit. I think when we try to recreate some of these feelings and sounds, those are areas of inspiration. Um, One piece that I did was called While I Was Walking, I Heard a Sound, and it was for three a cappella choirs and nine soloists, and there were two conductors, and one conductor, Robert Gary, was the main conductor of three choirs. One was a professional new music choir called Volti. Another was the San Francisco Choral Society. And then there was, he had a children's choir too that was a very high quality children's choir that went all over the world and made CDs. And then I got nine soloists who were opera singers and new music experimental vocalists. And it was commissioned by the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts for their 10th anniversary. And it was an extraordinary opportunity. So I created this piece and I wanted the the sense that, that you could be walking and that you would hear these different kinds of sounds as you were walking. So I would have the sound, for example, snake through the orchestra of singers, or I should say, these different choirs from one person to another. There were I think 40 individual voices and 120 singers altogether singing. And, and at different times, the, the choirs would be distinct and at different times there would be individuals. 
And the movements were divided by, by everything was phonemes. There was no libretto, it was all phonemes. And so things were divided into consonants and vowels. So the first movement was all vowels. The next movement was all the hard consonances of the Ks and then the soft A's and E's and O's and U's, et cetera. It was all a cappella, and there were singers in the different balconies as well. So there were these human bodies, almost like individual speakers that would be activated and non-activated and very, but through the score, they would sing at different times. And it was this, this way of composing that brought out both this location of the sound source and acousmatic, you know, Schaeferian sensibility, as well as a more of a soundscape. In fact, there's one part of this composition where all the choir is creating natural sounds with their mouths the sounds of water dripping and the sounds of what would be in a natural soundscape. So that was very interesting as well. And I found out with like more than a hundred people, there's a few people who have very good bird call sound. And so I would invite them to do a few bird call sounds and other times when they would all whistle together and that would really sound just like birds. And in other times they used their mouth like a a uh, rhythmic percussive instrument. So at different times, their mouth shape was delineated, you know, what kind of precision of the shape of their mouth, et cetera. And different sounds would come out based on their armature, the shape of the mouth. At times, it sounded like they were rhythmic percussion instruments, maracas, et cetera. So it was really this exploration of the human body and the mouth and all these amazing singers and then what they could do both with sometimes tonality and then other times um, more of a sound world. Lovely. I'm um, very touched by the descriptions. When we had our dinner together recently, Uh there was um, a deep interest that you shared in the communication between plants. My house is in a forest in Vermont and uh, one of the stunning experiences is to hear the wind arrive from a long distance away and pass you and keep on going and disappear because there's continuous forest. I followed some of your links where people have been studying how trees communicate. And I'm just wondering, you know, how that, are you making a piece from this idea or where, where are these thoughts taking you? The, the pieces that I've been doing with plants have experiencing a, um, a rebirth of sorts. And I started doing these pieces in the, in the late 90s and we're using a philodendron because the philodendrons are sebaceous, the leaves are sebaceous, so they can support you know, sensors, medical equipment being put on them. And they grow fast and they are semi-tropical, so they have to grow towards the light, but they also wind themselves around things and they have to make so-called decisions of like, do I climb over there or do I, the root systems, they follow the water, they follow these things, but they also, they do different things. I guess I typically talk about Aristotle when asked, what is the difference between a plant and a human? And he answered that plants are not mobile and humans are mobile. And so that's the difference. But there's these plants that live on the canopy on top of the rainforest and they send their root systems down to favor when there's favorable conditions of the soil and other, et cetera. And then when it becomes unfavorable, they stop nutrients and water going to those roots. So they cut those roots off and they move to another area and then shoot new roots down. So they're able to really traverse 
areas of, of you know, of yards. And they're actually quite mobile. They move slowly, but they do move. And plants have a root system that has concentrated cells and is able to have a system of, of determining plants' larger functions of what happens. So I'm not calling the root system a brain, but just saying that there is some kind of coordination going on that's very clear and undisputed. But I've been invited by the Toronto Biennale to do a, a piece, so I'm preparing that for a number of different plants, and some of the plants will be using Siri's voice to t- and be reading out different statistics of global warming in different parts of the world. So as somebody goes and interacts with the plant at different times, there'll be some sounds that will be abstract sounds, and other times there will be a readings of, of the sounds of, of radio broadcasts and other kinds of news outlets talking about how hot it is in one part of the world and other parts, etc. I just did a piece called O Plant in Germany at, and at the Mainz University, and that had I had sand on the floor and then video projections on the sand, and then when people interacted with the plant, projections would, would the plant would respond with projections on the sand. So there's these you know people would touch the leaves, etc. And so another one was called Meat is Meat is Murder, Plants Are Murder, Do Not Eat Plants. So it's kind of a funny take on the Meat is Murder song, popular song. And the idea that, you know, plants, because of all of this activity and this complex behavior that they have, that they are, in a way, eating them, you don't even want to eat them, actually, after working with them a lot. You, you just feel like they're too intelligent to eat. But, of course, we have to eat plants. It'd be very difficult if we didn't. In my experience with certain tribal individuals, the idea of um, talking to a plant was part of the tradition. So, for example, uh, amongst the Seneca Indians, um, one of the artists that I knew through Jerry Rothenberg was a guy called Avery Jimerson. He lived in upstate New York, and he knew hundreds and hundreds of songs and rituals, and he was a, a ceremony leader. But he also had knew the tradition of making live masks, which would mean that he would carve a ceremonial mask to be worn you know, by himself or others in rituals on a living tree. And he would communicate with the tree before he even made one incision. He would just communicate all about it so that the spirit would migrate from the tree. The tree would, and he would make a deal, basically, <laughs> to animate the mask. And the tree would understand what, what it was about. Somehow I thought that tale would be interesting for you. Yeah, no, that is. I used to do these pieces in the... 90s and at one point I had a big group of gardeners come to one of the performances. They had never come to any kind of new music concert before and they heard about this one and they came and they were all some gardening association or club or something. So, And then people would come up to me afterwards and this is decades ago and they would they would tell me about a tr- a plant in their life that was very important to them like maybe a tree in their yard that had been in their yard for generations and they felt a kind of kinship with this and it was very moving and the, it kind of reconnected me with people for a while too because i think I had, was a, a very active musician at, at one point and organizing ensembles. I had my own ensembles, I improvised with other people. And 
you know, I was a woman and often usually it was just men on the, in the groups. And it was be very difficult because I had to have the leadership role. It's not easy to keep bands together, et cetera. So I, I just got fed up at one point with working with people in bands, in group musical situations. So I decided to start um, looking to other species to have as kind of living entities. And, you know, that was not all of the drive, but it was definitely a portion of it, I would say, for working with the insects and the plants. It was a relief from humanity a bit to do so. And I had my own issues with the insects, you know, and the plants also. But one thing the plants did do is they kind of brought back this humanity in a sense because everybody would come up and really tell me things that they'd say, I've never told this to anyone before, but, and then they'd just go on about a story about, uh, you know, whether it was their garden or different different things in, with plants that have had a huge impact on their lives that they didn't think about until they saw the, my piece with plants. So, so it's interesting. Well, it's extraordinary because uh, I think you've stumbled on some of the steps that made it possible for our species to begin to take steps beyond our small habitats. The relationship with, uh, with plants and the relationships with certain animals meant, meant the beginning of another kind of life. It was those relationships that opened up territories. Mm, yeah, territories. That's interesting. The territories, I think tributaries, or just some kind of like um, meandering in my thoughts here a little bit, but and moving away a little bit from the plants and animals, there was this commission from the EMF or Electronic Music Foundation. And for that piece, I wrote something called The Last Living Stream in New York City. And it was Minetta Creek. The Last Living Stream in New York City, colon, Minetta Creek. So part of the reason I had this connection to Minetta Creek was for some odd coincidence, Joan LaBarbera and Morton Zabotnik had an apartment on Minetta Creek, absolutely on top of it. And I told her I was doing this piece on the last living stream of New York City, Minetta Creek. And I had, was interviewing people who had a relationship with the creek somehow, this underwater flow of water under their buildings in a very heavy populated urban environment of New York City. And so Joan said, well, you can come over and record it when it's raining. You can actually hear it. And so at one point it had been raining and she called me up and I was able to go there and then we go down into her the basement or someplace and it, you, sure enough, you could hear the water running with the microphone. So I recorded the sounds in her and Morton Sabotnik's apartment which I thought was really an odd coincidence as well that, you know, I mean, there are so such luminaries in, in this new music experimental scene, et cetera, and also just electronic music and, and then to have this stream running underneath and me recording it, you know, I thought that was an interesting set of, <laughs> of things happening, but I did this piece at, I think, was it Judson church that was multi-channeled with water and, think some video of different streams and interviews with people talking about how underneath there, I think also I interviewed someone from the New York University Library and underneath they would talk about how it would rain a lot, the floods would come and they could hear the, the Minetas Creek underneath. And it, it was almost like this ghostly kind of 
entity that would, you know, rise and fall with the weather in kind of a metaphysical way, but also very real in the sense of, of flooding. Of course, now we think of flooding in much more dire, extreme, non-nostalgic ways. But at the time, there wasn't such horrible flooding all over the world like there is now. And it was a little bit more whimsical to have Minetta Creek flowing underneath your building. Have you um, ever had a dialogue with uh, Anaya Lockwood about streams and rivers? Not specifically, although she's a very, um, you know, she's an amazing pioneer and a huge figure in sound. And I've been in dialogue with her at different things. And actually, she showed me on her iPhone a score she had made with the maps of the Hudson Rivers and the tributaries and ideas of a score and I think that we've had a wonderful chat. Uh, Is there anything more you'd like to add? Uh, I have two other things to talk about, and I'll try to be brief because I... You don't have to be brief. Uh, Um, This is is your time. (laughs) One is um, called A Long Way to F-Sharp, and it was these 12 speakers that were in a large circle. And the piece went on for 12... It was a 12-hour piece and a 12-day piece, and then theoretically a 12-year piece that... So these different frequencies would very slowly move. And depending on which way you ran, you know, there would be an arpeggio going up. And if you ran the opposite direction inside the circle, like running around, like doing tracks, it would go, so it would go down. This piece had a little bit more to do with movement, you know, our movements and then perception and how things interact. Yeah. So that was, that was done at a private college in Florida, but it kind of brings me to a more recent piece, which is called Vaginated Chairs. And that was done at MoMA PS1 and Kunstmuseum Bonn, Germany, and later Mainz University and also the Friedman Gallery. And that's where there were 12 chairs and they were each tuned to a different frequency with transducers. And there were these individual small vaginal inserts that were non-toxic silicon embedded with a small piezo mic that people would would insert into their vagina and there'd be sounds from their body going into the space with all the speakers and so there'd be the sounds of the buzzing and vibrating chairs with different specific frequencies along with some people wearing these inserts so this piece actually you know, it could have been done with Bluetooth and having no wire, explicit or visual wire, but actually MoMA said they wanted to have that wire because it showed to the audience, to the viewer, that something different was happening than just people sitting on just chairs. So from their pant legs, you would see a wire coming out of the bottom of their pant legs from their shoes and then going into the mixer. I wrote this kind of treatise, a manifesto called reimagining vagina perception and the vagina, the vagina is the third ear. And the idea that the vagina was, um, the ear looks like a vagina, but without the bony cartilage and that it's a site for perception. But due to repression of the, of talking about the vagina for young girls, they can't use the word, they're not supposed to touch themselves, etc. 
So this area has been really repressed and this area of possible perception has also been repressed. But because we sit down on chairs and benches all the time through body conduction, bone conduction, and and then this area of perception, we're actually developing a higher level of perception since we're doing so much sitting as human beings. So there's this, this article that I'm writing that hopefully will be published soon that talks about that. And of course, there's Different people have talked about the third year before. So I did want to mention that piece. And also I wanted to mention a piece that I did called the Ear Hut, which was a commission from Sonic Innovations. And it's at the Caramore right now. And there's these different traffic signs that are yellow and they look like official traffic signs, but they're spread out throughout the Caramore Park. The signs say, listen ahead. And then there's an ear hut that I built. It's it's a small hut and you sit on a bench and you experience sound from these slots, these like horizontal slots. I call them ear slots. And you there's no boundary between the inside of the hut and the outside of environment sound. So it's a way of accessing both and having these permeation of the membrane between the inside and the outside, the, the sounds go in back and forth without us thinking so much. And they're kind of, there's also sounds that I've recorded and I've embedded into the ear hut. So you hear those sounds in the ear hut and the sounds of the, the outside. And it's this experience of the inside and the outside and the hidden and the revealed because um, there's things that you that are like that in terms of what's inside and you can't hear what's outside, etc. You know, I think I'm just thinking about the earhead in general of building an architectural space, however small and humble, that is built to privilege the ear over the eye. And it's conceptual, but it's also kind of harkens back, I think, to William Reich and the organ machine and thinking about these kind of metaphysical, spiritual places that exist in our imagination. And I think that they can kind of be revisited in, in different ways that enhance our listening experience and how we experience our different environments of our inside of our bodies, our brains, how we imagine a hive and how we experience the outdoors. Quite lovely. Thank you. And I'm sorry, I just feel like I was talking about myself this whole interview. But, but that's the idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, this is you and leading us uh, on a journey through your exploration. So it's appropriate. Well, I want to be able to do the same for you at some point so that we can reverse this process. So I hope to do that. But also just this, all this talking, I never thought about William Reich and the ear hut before, but actually the, the, the organ and William Reich business was a big part of, of my consciousness as a teenager. So it actually comes together for me. Did you build an organ box? No, I didn't. But the whole book, Listen, Little Man, and some of those ideas of we were kind of obsessed a little bit, you know, humorously they, of the of William Reich's and and these kinds of things. And so, but I never put two and two together. So it's interesting. Uh, have you gone up to Maine to where he was? There is apparently uh, something of his that's where where he lived and where he worked. I've just seen photographs of the organ box, which just looks like a, a closet with a chair inside. So it, I've never been there though. Um, but tomorrow I'm going to Wesley and I have a talk there. 
And I brought all my students to the David Tudor rainforest that's at MoMA. And then David Tudor has got a bunch of his instruments at Wesleyan's, which I hope to see. I was able to study with him for a short while at Mills College when he was a visiting artist. And there were just cables everywhere, you know. Um, there wasn't there wasn't an emphasis on things being really pretty and clean. It was just more about the sounds and having things work <laughs> and creating this world. But at, at MoMA, it was very interesting because things, there was not a cable in sight and was very pristine and it was quite different. It was still very beautiful, but a very different aesthetic than what he did. Had you ever yeah. visited his house uh, on the land? I've never, no, have you? Yeah, I used to visit him there. I knew him a long time ago and he lived next door to Shari Deans and uh, she's a person who's uh, been part of my life and part of the scene for a long time and she's passed on, but she was his neighbor. Uh, it's part of the, a settlement of artists called The Land that's uh, up the Hudson River. What city is it near? It's just north of Pomona. John Cage lived there for a while. Various filmmakers were there. Stan, Stan Brackage was there. And the New York Early Music Ensemble, the Gert Stern, who had set up an institute um, up there also in, a, in an old church. So there's kind of echoes of the community of which Tudor was a part of. Well, nice to talk, and we should continue our conversation. And I appreciate your being part of the Immerse Project. We'll continue it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. This is Immerse, the podcast and book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. I'm Anea Lockwood. Immerse. 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 Immerse.